This is KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. You're tuned into the Kenai Conversation. I'm Riley Ward. Today, we're celebrating our yearly tradition of bringing together local reporters for a roundtable to discuss relevant local issues, the reporting process, and what we're currently working on. And just a note, this conversation was recorded on Monday, October 9th, before absentee votes had come in for last week's municipal election. You can check out updated election results at kdll.org. Here with me today is KDLL's newest reporter, Hunter Morrison, and the Peninsula Clarion reporter team of Ashlyn O'Hara and Jake Dye. Thank you all so much for being here. And let's kick this off with having everyone introduce themselves. We'll go around and we'll have everyone talk a little bit about what it is you cover, how long you've worked at your publications, how long you've lived in this area, and whatever else you want to share. And Jake, let's start with you. Hey, I'm, I'm Jake Dye. I'm the general assignment news reporter at the Clarion. Um, that means I sort of cover a, a lot of everything, um, sort of as needed. Um, I do a lot of, my, my favorite stuff is like the arts and entertainment, the events. I also do a lot of like public health and fishing stuff. Um, I've lived in the area my entire life, 26 years. Um, and that, that's sort of me. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. All right, and Ashlyn, how about you? Yeah, so I'm Ashlyn O'Hara. I'm the government and education reporter at the Clarion. So I do a lot of city council, borough assembly, um, and then also education. So anything having to do with the Kenai Peninsula Borough School District. And I last month celebrated three years with the Clarion. And I've lived in in between Soldata and Sterling for about that time. Awesome. And Hunter, we'll end with you. Hey, everybody. I'm Hunter Morrison. I am KDLO's newest reporter. Um, and I kind of, uh, I kind of focus on like feature stories and, um, you know, still, uh, stories of local interest, um, arts, feature reporting, those sort of things. So. And how long have you been in the area, Hunter? About a month and a half now. So not long. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And I, I guess I should introduce myself as well. I'm Riley Board. I'm the senior reporter at KDLL and I cover unincorporated communities on the peninsula as well as government and and education and i'm here through a journalism nonprofit placement program called report for america it's a two-year grant that funds my being here to cover undercovered areas in rural publications so that's a bit about me all right well i think we should start off by talking about sort of the biggest news that's happened here recently, which is our municipal elections happened last Tuesday. We're currently still waiting on absentee votes and certifications of elections, but let's talk a little bit about the preliminary results, what they mean for this area. And also we were, we were all a bit involved in the election reporting process through our candidate forum series, which allowed us to bring together groups of candidates to talk through issues. And, uh, you know, Jake, you were involved in that by live streaming the events and Hunter was working on the studio and making sure that those got on air and and Ashlyn and I were were hosting those forums and moderating those forums. So Ashlyn, maybe I'll throw it to you. What do you think some of the biggest takeaways of the elections are? Yeah, so um, I mean, I think the biggest takeaways for me is um, the, the Seward Electric ballot issue was a pretty big one. So um, over in Seward, they were voting on whether or not to sell the city's electric utility to Homer Electric Association, and city voters voted on the same the same topic during a special election in May, and it narrowly failed. So sale of electric utilities in the city of Seward requires a 60% support threshold in order to advance, and so... After the election in May, more than half of the folks over there supported it, but less than 60% voted in favor, so it failed. They put that issue back on the ballot this go-around, along with a separate ballot proposition that would have lowered the the support threshold needed to advance the sale from 60% to 50%. So, for example, if folks had voted in favor of lowering the threshold and also the electric utility 
passed by maybe 55%, that would have been enough to advance the sale. Um, That ended up not kind of being a moot point because both propositions failed pretty soundly. So um, the threshold was not lowered and the sale is not moving forward. Um, So I was, I was interested to see how that one came down. Um, There were also a lot of just interesting races on the borough assembly and school board. There were more seats open than usual because uh, folks were either appointed to those bodies or in the case of the assembly, uh, Jesse Bjorkman was obviously elected to the state legislature, so his seat was open. So there were more local races than usual. Not all of them were contested, but in the case of the Board of Education, two of the, the races went to challengers over incumbents, or at least that's what it looks like right now. So that was pretty interesting to see come down. And then the assembly is scheduled to certify the results of the election tomorrow, So, um, or at their regular meeting tomorrow evening. So... Um, I expect we'll have the the final results, which will include the counting of about 700 outstanding ballots, which I think is enough to to make a difference in some of those tighter races. Right. We've got an assembly race in Nikiski between um, that individual who was appointed to, as you mentioned, Jesse Bjorkman's seat, Peter Ribbons, and a challenger that I believe currently has a six vote margin, seven vote margin without I'm checking right now. Something, something pretty, maybe five, something pretty tight without those absentee ballots counted. So I think we're both keeping an eye on that race to see how, how that goes. Yeah. It's a, it's a five vote difference in that race. Yeah. And when it comes to the, the Seward utility vote, if we can jump back to that for a second, you know, obviously it was a lot closer last time that failed by just seven votes and was over, you know, 50%, but less than 60% threshold. But leading up to the Seward City Council putting this back on the ballot, um, folks in Seward weren't especially supportive of it going back on the ballot. And there were a couple of petitions brought forward to remove it from the ballot. Do you want to talk a little bit about that that discussion that happened? Yeah, so... um, after the, the utility sale failed in May, the Seward City Council put together um, what's called an ad hoc committee that was specifically tasked with kind of mapping out the future of the city's electric utility. And, and really the question is whether or not um, it makes sense to sell the uti- utility to a larger co-op such as HEA or another company that it had expressed interest was Chugach Electric Association. Um, the, the question is really whether or not the city should sell its utility to one of those larger co-ops or should it try to upgrade and revitalize the system that it has right now, which currently operates independently of, of any of those other other groups. So it's, it's just Seward Electric. Um, and yeah, there's there was some public concern about uh, just the way the the sale process happened in terms of how HEA was selected as the preferred buyer, um, what effect the sale would have on rates. And so the city, along with HEA, has done a pretty robust uh, public education campaign trying to help folks understand what, what that sale would look like for them. Um, but there was, there was still some opposition. So two petitions were filed um, over, the, over the summer, which basically would have taken the two ballot questions, or the two questions off of the ballot, the first one being whether or not to sell the utility, the second one being whether or not to lower the support threshold needed. Um, and so the, the city, uh, as I was reporting that at the very, at the least, um, the city was unclear about what effect the petitions would have on the, the, the actual ballot questions because of when the petitions were filed, the referendum petitions would have prompted a special election that would have needed to take place after the regular election on the third. And so the question then is, you know, what what is the effect of taking a ballot question or a question off the ballot for an election that's already passed? Um, and so when I was talking to the city about that, they said, you know, we're not really interested in or we're not able to spend a lot of resources analyzing hypotheticals because we don't know how it's going how the election results are going to come down. And so because both sales or both ballot questions failed, it did end up being a moot, a moot point. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for, for filling us in on all of the back and forth there. And before we move on from, from talking about elections, I think, um, it'd be interesting to talk about 
turnout because so far it's pretty low. It's hovering around 12.5%. Is that correct, Ashlyn? Let's see. Yeah, so it says about 12.35%. Um, but, I mean, that, that number is a, a little tricky just because it is it reflects the number of, of ballots cast as a percentage of the number of registered voters in the borough. And voter registration is done through the state of Alaska. And it says, for example, that there are 52,000 registered voters in the borough, which has a population of 60,000. So we know the, the number of inflated or the number of registered voters is, is a little bit inflated. But yeah, even, even so, 12% is still a pretty low number. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, part of turnout is related to information out there about elections and, and the Clarion and KDLO worked together this election cycle, as we did last year as well, to put together a series of candidate forums where we where we talk to all of the candidates. I wonder, does anyone have any reflections on our candidate forum series this year? Any any takeaways from that experience? Any any highlights or things you want to share? Do you have any takeaways? <laughs> well, I, well, I thought it was you know beneficial to me as a as a member of the community to you know to be able to allow participants in these local races, candidates in these local races to share, I think, you know, this was a year when all of the elections were hyper local and a lot of information comes out when there are state and federal elections and you get to hear more of people's contrasting viewpoints, but but it's harder to access that information um, for these nonpartisan local races. So I think I, I am enjoyed the opportunity that we had to learn about that and, and hopefully to provide some of that to the public. Well, let's move on from the election. And, and I guess you can probably look out for coverage from both of us about that as the, as the certifications happen and, and the rest of the votes get counted over the next couple days. But sort of pulling back the curtain on the reporting process, um, you know, two of us, Hunter and I are, are radio reporters and the two of you are print reporters. I don't know you know how much the average listener or reader knows about the differences in those processes and what our days look like as reporters so I'd love to go around and talk about you know how our daily reporting processes work and how we find the stories that we end up bringing to the public Jake maybe we'll we'll start with you here if you don't mind what you know what does a day in the life look like for you in terms of reporting and, and where would you say you find most of the stories you end up putting together something that I've sort of told a lot of folks is is that basically my favorite part of being a reporter since I, I got the gig you know a little over a year ago is the fact that it's sort of different every day and that you know I'm sort of every day sort of especially being you know the general assignment news reporter just kind of doing what needs doing you know you come in in the morning and just kind of figure out what needs to be done. And so sometimes that means going out to cover events. Sometimes that means, you know, spending the whole day in, in the newsroom, just kind of calling people. Um, you know, some days we're, we're driving out to Homer, Seward, you know, getting out to do things. I, I think sort of my general day is I start um, with social media. I, I schedule the social media posts in the morning and that sort of gets into where I get a lot of my stories too, because Facebook, especially nowadays, is and especially in this community, is I think a, a really important resource as far as, you know, I check the events page to see what's going on. I check a lot of different community groups and some of the important pages to see, you know, what what, what folks have going on. And, and then you know we've kind of got a, a loose deadline of like four to six p.m. So you know I get in at like ten a.m. Hopefully, got things figured out by 11, and you know we're collecting stuff, and then you know hopefully, writing by something like two. But it's you know it's always pretty loose as it needs to be, um, to get all the stories in and to my editor. Cool, and Hunter, I'll I'll throw it to you next. And I know you've only been at the job for for a month and a half. Um, what does what is your process shaping up to look like uh, as you jump in here? Yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, piggybacking off, you know, something Jake just said that, you know, your day as a journalist, it never really quite looks the same. Um, Each day can vary drastically. Um, But I would say, like, generally, you know, I start my day, sit down at my computer, you know, look, check emails to see if 
maybe there's something that was sent to me that maybe generates a story idea. It could be a press release or, you know, something, something like that. Um, I'll like peruse social media to see if there's any story ideas. Um, at least recently, since I'm like, you know, still kind of getting settled in, I'll have uh, my boss or, you know, you, you, you've um, sent me several st- uh, story ideas to chase. Um, so yeah, normally, normally first part of the day is just kind of looking for, looking for story ideas. And then, um, from those ideas, I usually, you know, start chasing, um, a a certain story. So, you know, make calls, make, uh, send emails, um, try to, try to get like a contact, you know, uh, available to chat with me or, or something like that. Um, do interviews either over the phone or in person. And then usually by about 11 or 12, I like to start like writing a script to have something on the radio that day. So I start with radio script and then I send it to like you to take a look at it. Then I'll go into the studio and record it. And then hopefully by 520, I'll have at least one story, sometimes two uh, ready to go. So that's, I I would say that's kind of my, my process and it's pretty loose. Like I said, it just depends on the day. Um, but some, something like along those lines. If you're just joining us, this is the Kenai Conversation, where today we're hosting local reporters on the peninsula to talk about local issues and discuss the behind the scenes of reporting. We just heard from Jake Dye and Hunter Morrison about their days as a reporter, and we'll end with Ashlyn O'Hara here. Ashlyn, what do your days look like as a reporter? Yeah, so, I mean... I usually come in hot with a to-do list of 10 or more things that need to get done before the end of the day. And in terms of stories, it's a lot of balancing, um, uh, you know, quick turn news items that need to be done by a specific date while also trying to advance longer term projects. And I would say, I mean, I think one of the things, especially being here for a few years now is the longer you're in a community, the better equipped you are to tell more meaningful stories, I think. And so I find that I have a lot of bigger story ideas or stories that I know will take a lot of time that I want to do. And so it's just kind of a constant balancing act of making sure that we get the latest news from assembly or city council or board of ed or, you know, state news or whatever needs to happen into the newspaper while also trying to you know, keep stuff, keep the ball rolling on, on projects that I know are going to take a long time or longer time, I guess. Yeah. I, I think it would be interesting to talk about timing in general as a group, because I think that's something that news consumers, you know, our listeners or or readers or sources even are probably not that aware of. And, and also I'm not that aware of exactly, you know, how it works on the Clarion side, but you know, we, we turn around a lot of stories in a single day or maybe in two days or, you know, sometimes in, in a couple hours. Um, well, also, like Ashlyn mentioned, balancing longer term projects that require, you know, more more of a time investment. You know, what is the typical timeline for for turning around an individual story from idea to publication um, for the Clarion folks? I mean, I think I pretty rarely go over a day and I think part of that's just my own inability to really manage my time like I I don't think I have terribly much foresight especially compared to Ashlyn as far as those longer term projects but you know I sort of I mean nine times out of ten you know something crosses my desk and we're making it happen immediately or I mean I guess the longer term things are the things that I've got scheduled out as far as like arts coverage like you know, Jekyll and Hyde's going to be playing, uh, the Kenan performers are putting on Jekyll and Hyde. So I've got, you know, a day scheduled to go out to that, but I'll go out to that one night and then I'll write the story the next day. Um, and I think that's one of the advantages as far as print is a lot of like shorter stuff. I feel like can be turned around very quickly. And, you know, there have been days where I've, you know, turned around up to like five stories, but a lot of the stories are, you know, just shorter, you know, a press release comes in, you know, the, the Kenan National Wildlife Refuge is about to allow, you know, firewood collection. You know, we got a press release. I'm not going to get any further content about that. I'm just going to write that up real quick. Yeah. And what about you, Ashlyn? Because obviously, like you mentioned, sometimes that's a little different for you. Yeah. Um, so it also just kind of depends on the, the type of story. So things that happen at, at city council, uh, I mean, usually are a pretty quick turnaround just in my experience, um, versus, 
I mean, yeah, it, it kind of just depends on the story. So, like, I'm, I'm thinking of one that I'm, I'm sitting on right now that probably could have been published on Friday but wasn't, was about the, the homeschool town hall that was held on Thursday. Um, that was about just a little over two hours of, of homeschool families talking to Borough Mayor Peter Machicki and the and KPBSD Superintendent Clayton Holland about, you know, why they choose one homeschool program over the other. Um, and, and it comes as both the borough and the district are trying to figure out ways to make KPBSD's homeschool program, which is called Connections, more robust. And so that conversation, I mean, there were a lot of people who had some really interesting things to say. And so, you know, it's two and a half hours of, of going to the meeting, plus, you know, driving round trip from Kenai to Soldatna, um, and then, you know, an hour or so parsing through the the audio footage that I have and trying to figure out quotes and you know, maybe another 30 minutes outlining and a couple hours to write it. And then after all of that, I realized there were some holes that I wanted to circle back with the district on. And um, so, I mean, that's an example of a story that, you know, probably could have been turned around really quickly, but I've ended up dragging it out over the weekend. So, you know, maybe it's taking longer than it needs to. Yeah. And and Hunter, do you want to talk at all about what what you've sort of experienced when it comes to timing in your in your first couple weeks here? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> kind of piggybacking off, you know, what Jake and Ashlyn said. I think it, I think it just kind of depends on the story. There are certain stories that I can get out there with in maybe two hours, and then there are others that might take a little bit longer. I try to get, I try to get something like from from idea to interview to you know actually writing the script. I try to get something out within a day or two. Um, I haven't had any like longer term projects as of yet. Um, but that's typically what I do try to do within, you know, like a day or two. Um, and there are some other projects that I have worked on that, you know, since we're in radio, we, we also incorporate like sound, like sound bites into our stories or uh, ambi sound, you know, of people out there doing stuff. And sometimes, you know, you have to listen, listen through that tape and try to find like the best little, little, little nuggets of, of, uh, you know, sound. So sometimes that takes longer, but I would say oftentimes I can, I usually get stuff out within a day or less. To clarify, Ambi is short for ambient sound to, to define that vocab. Yeah. And this has me thinking, you know, when Jake was talking about like putting out up to five stories in a day, but, but they really like vary in terms of their, their length. And, you know, something I think is interesting, maybe like looking behind the scenes here at how radio stories work, there's a lot of different formats that require different amounts of effort there's um like what we call readers which is stories that have no no quotes or no no at least audio file quotes in them that are entirely read by the host which i guess you know would be the equivalent of maybe just like a quick turnaround um like print story where you're not necessarily interviewing anyone and then there's raps where there's a mixture of the voice of the host and audio files but they're usually on the shorter side. And then there's packages where you're combining, you know, the reporter's voice, the voices of interviewees and potentially like ambient sound or other material and like making it like a longer cohesive package. And the interesting thing is like, there's, there's room for all of those in the daily news cycle. There's room for those longer packages, exploring complex issues and talking to like multiple sources. And there's room for like, Jake mentioned like fire what was it firewood collection in yep uh, yeah firewood collection in the national wildlife refuge right <laughs> right there's stories like that that don't necessarily call for extensive interviewing I mean in fact it would it would feel a little <laughs> silly to do like extensive interviewing on those things and um and I I find it interesting sometimes when I'm when I'm talking to someone maybe for a quick story where I just need like just a little bit of like clarifying information and someone's like oh well if you want to explore this issue more you can talk to like this person and and they'd be a good interview and I'm like I don't know that's that's not really you know sometimes a story I'm like really looking for like other sources to talk to to expand upon my reporting and sometimes I'm like nope like this is going on the air in 10 minutes so actually I I won't but I appreciate that suggestion and um yeah and I just think our our work sort of because we're all at publications that have very few reporters our work contains really quick turnaround stories that are you know just for the purpose of getting information out there and then more in-depth looks at things that that require more time and effort and conversation anyway so we've we've sort of been 
you know, I was sort of talking a bit there about how how radio reporting works versus print reporting. There have been some from some changes at the Clarion recently in terms of your printing schedule and style in May, is that correct? The Clarion April, late April. Late April. The Clarion went from printing five days a week to printing two days a week and, and printing off site. And I wonder how has that changed what your work schedule looks like and what your process looks like as reporters? I mean, I think for a long time I, I kept saying that it, it felt like little had changed. Like we were still writing stories every day. We still are writing stories every day. They still go online every day. But I, th- I think it's kind of increasingly become clear over time that those those two days when we're, you know, those two production days when we're putting together the paper for you know, we put out a paper Wednesday and Saturday, so those production days are Monday and Thursday, two days ahead of print. And, I mean, it, it really does seem like on those Mondays and Thursdays, we're really putting a lot together in kind of an interesting way when, with sort of the daily output that is the plan, that is the intention, it does seem to, that focus always does seem to end up being on those two days in an, in an interesting way. Yeah, um... I mean, I think my my biggest takeaway from shifting from five days a week to two days a week is I think the the quality of the paper that that folks are getting, you know, either by mail or, you know, however you're getting a physical copy of the paper. I think that's a higher quality newspaper than we were able to put out before. And that's simply because the of the volume, like trying to fill you know, a 12 or 16 page newspaper five days a week with two news reporters is just a big, it's a heavy lift and there's not really any room for error or slow days. And, um, you know, I think understandably people are maybe frustrated when they would get their, a copy of their local paper and it would have, you know, maybe two or three local news stories in it versus now when they're getting the paper, you know, it's almost entirely filled with, with local stories whether or not I mean that's a combination of from me and from Jake and from Jeff Helminiak our sports guy and the other folks who contribute letters to the editor and columns and things like that so I think the actual physical paper is is a higher quality and then for folks who get their news online um, I mean they're still able to get kind of the latest information that way if if that's how they they do it Um, from a reporting perspective they're it's certainly nice to have less deadlines per week in terms of, you know, when you're when you're working toward a, a deadline and you have more days to put information together. That is just nice to have that flexibility if you're, you know, if you don't spend as many days scrambling to finish things before you feel like they might be ready, which I really appreciate. But sometimes it is also a bit difficult, like, for example, you know, we have an education page that usually runs in the Wednesday paper. School board meetings happen on Monday night, and the deadline for the Wednesday paper is Monday evening. So anything that happens at board of education meetings that we want to get in the like the next issue of the paper has to be written that night. And we ran into that too with coverage of the like election candidate forums. So those forums were held on Mondays and Thursdays, which are production days, which meant that after each one of the forums, I would have to go and write that forum story, which is fine because it, you know, gets in the latest edition of the paper, but there is a bit of, of scrambling and, um, yeah, just, just a little bit more work on our part to make sure that, that we get the information in the newspaper as timely as possible. If you're just tuning in, this is the Kenai Conversation, where we're hosting our yearly reporter roundtable with reporters from KDLL and the Peninsula Clarion. An interesting difference that has always struck me about our publications and how they function, and you sort of brought this up, but but let me know if this feels like it rings true for you, is that in in print, you're working toward filling a newspaper and, and like filling a certain amount of space. And I know in print, you talk about stories in terms of of inches that they fill on the page and in radio we're usually working toward filling less time there's sort of like a rule in radio that that things should be shorter and and more concise and that like listeners have an easier time digesting information when it comes in its you know most compact form possible and our general manager Jenny has like had this rule for me before where I should always 
like after I finish a story, I should copy it, see how many words there are and try to take off like 10% or 20% of the words. And I think that's interesting. I, I sort of come from a print background, so I'm used to that idea of trying to fill space. And it's been an interesting adjustment for me to, to try to work toward doing the opposite. And I think it, it results in like an interesting situation where we end up putting out really different sorts of stories by covering the same events. I'm wondering if you guys feel like you've seen any examples of like how our coverage has differed of the same things. I mean, obviously this is a small community, but there's a lot happening and, and we end up covering a lot of the same things pretty often. Have you seen any any interesting contrasts in how, you know, our, our two takes on the same story have have appeared? I mean, I think I've got one that I noticed just this last week is especially getting at exactly what you're saying is where, you know, we're looking to fill space, we're looking to fill inches, and you guys have to sort of keep things tighter with, as far as the, the Fat Bear Week stuff that, that Hunter did. You know, my I ran a story, I think the start of last week, the start, I mean, right before Fat Bear Week, I think it went online on Monday, and... I mean, I, I really probably had too many words in it, and it's, I kind of described each individual bear. I'm like, we're taking, we're describing every matchup, we're describing every bear. Here's Holly, here's her deal, and you know, and then of course, Hunter did a really, a really good story about the same topic, and you know, your your focus, I, I I thought was a little bit different, and I know you had like the the interview with some of the folks who were you know, putting that thing on. It was it was just sort of two. I think it's you know where you mentioned like two different takes, and I think you can see. Whereas, you know, I, I really took, took advantage of all the space that was afforded to me, whereas Hunter's was m- more compact and concise in a pretty significant way. <clears throat> yeah, like, <clears throat> when I was, uh, you know, interviewing and writing the story, I'm like, I would love to, like, do a little profile on all of these bears, like a paragraph or two, but I just don't have the time for mm-hmm. it, you know. The story would run way longer than it needs to, um, but, yeah. <laughs> and I, I think a similar difference a difference of the same nature that I've observed in the things that Ashlyn and I cover that, that are like similar events is that, you know, you have just like way more informative detail on um, things like numbers, especially when it comes to like monetary amounts. There's been a lot of like budget talk here lately, especially in the school district, but just in general, there's been a lot of budget news. The bond package is playing out in a way that's complex and involves a lot of money numbers and you know there's generally a rule in radio to avoid numbers round numbers (laughs) the yeah when I told Ashlyn that I think she was not (laughs) she was not a fan um but yeah I think it's generally understood in radio that that the listeners can't if if you throw out a, a complex number you know comprehending that audibly auditorily is difficult and doesn't and then it pulls you out of the story and then you miss what happens next and you can't really miss what happens next in radio because you can't go back and read it again. And, um, and you know, I, I appreciate that about your reporting that you can go back and read it again and get the precise and like detailed information on things like, <laughs> like money and, you know, all of the sort of complex numbers that are being thrown around here. And, and I can't always do that. And I feel like I'm, I'm constantly working on getting better at being, concise and auditorily helpful in the way that I report on on things that do involve big numbers because that's been happening a lot here lately (laughs) well let um let's turn to you now Hunter as as the freshest reporter at the table I'd love to know you know what has it been like for you adapting to reporting in a new place you're coming here from western Florida um where you have been living and working your whole life well you probably haven't been working your whole life or you've been living your whole life and working for the past couple of years what have you found interesting or or difficult or complex about covering this area what has that adaptation been like for you well just the I guess the you know stories that I've been doing here are <clears throat> a lot different than you know stories that I did back in Florida I've been doing a lot more salmon or fishing related stories than I ever thought I would be, which is funny because, you know, I live, you know, right by the coast in Florida, but I never actually really covered any fishing related stories because we always had other things going on. Um, but yeah, I've done a lot, a lot more fishing stories than I, than I ever thought I would. And, um, at first it was a little challenging kind of getting familiar with, you know, 
uh, I guess the fishing culture and, and, you know, terminology and things of that sort. Cause like, I know nothing about fishing, but now I feel like I can, I'm almost a semi expert on fishing just because of the, uh, the stories that I've been doing. Um, so I've been doing, you know, a lot of fishing and also wildlife stories. So I, I found, I've found those very interesting and, um, very different than what I'm used to back home. And then one thing I've also noticed just not so much, you know, the stories that I've been doing, but just while I'm out reporting is I'm really beginning to realize how tight knit of a community, you know, it is here because back home and, you know, back home in Pensacola, I mean, it was a, like a decent sized city, maybe 50, 60,000 people. Um, but here I feel like everybody knows everybody. Um, I've gone out to interviews where I'm talking to people or, or, you know, something like that. And, you know, they, they mention somebody's name and I'm like, Oh, I interviewed that person yesterday or, Oh, that person's my neighbor or, you know, something like that. So it's, I don't know. It's kind of, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it just cause I'm not used to it, but it's, it's been very interesting so far. Yeah. Another, another aspect of that that I'll ask you about is how do you feel this area is in terms of its um, media friendliness and people's willingness to talk to you as a reporter compared to where you came from? Do you feel like those interactions are, are different from in Florida? Mm, I mean, I think it just depends on the topic. Um, I mean, so far, I haven't really seen that much of a difference. I would say that people are slightly more friendly, like media friendly here, um, just because of the, you know, the types of stories that I've been doing here. Um, but I haven't really been able to tell too much of a difference, at least yet. Gotcha. And then, Jake, I'm going to turn to you for the opposite question, which is that you've lived here your whole life and you know, you, you grew up here as a, just a regular person and then returned as a reporter after college. How do you feel like that's changed your relationship to the place and the interactions you have with people in this community you've always lived in? I mean, I, I think sort of the, the last year, you know, that I've spent reporting in this community has, has done a lot to, I mean, improve my relationship with it in a pretty big way. Whereas I, you know, something that I've said you know, ever, ever since I started, people have been like, oh, you know, you grew up here, you know, that makes, that, that's so helpful for you, that, you know, makes makes your life easier. And for a long time, I disagreed. I was like, well, you know, in high school, I certainly, I didn't get out much. I didn't, I didn't really have any of my own personal connections to this community. Whereas, you know, my, my parents certainly do, and my grandparents. And I think as I've reported, you know, that has, has, has come in handy more than once as, as you know, I sort of on the fishing note, went to talk to these, you know, fishermen out in Cape Beach, and they were all like, oh, you know, I went to high school with your grandfather. And, you know, that's, that kind of started me on an, on an easier note as far as them. But, yeah, reporting for the last year, especially with, like, the arts and stuff that I like to do, has, you know, just shown me sort of, like, all of the cool things that are going on that I just had, you know, I lived here for 26 years, and I had absolutely no clue, you know, half the fun stuff that's going on. I don't want to. I don't want to call out a specific thing, but I, I. Something I found entertaining is that you didn't know that Salmon Fest was a real event. <laughs> I remember being very entertained when I learned that. I, yeah, I, I thought I thought Salmon Fest was fictional for a long time um, because I, you know, I'd seen all the shirts and I just thought they were one of those like touristy things that people were sold. And it's like, oh, yeah, the fictional, you know, the fictional festival, and you know, I, I conflated that with Salmon Stock too. And but I've, I've been to Salmon Fest. It's real. It's, I can confirm. <laughs> well, there's just proof that even if you've lived here your whole life, there's still, there's still stuff to learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like your, you know, do you feel like it, it complicates your ability to like to interview people or, or how you approach interviews? Or do you feel like it's helpful that you have that local knowledge? I, I definitely think that it's, it's been helpful. I mean, and I, I think in almost every case, I think there's, you know, some, some weird stuff that I always, you know, I think I think about more than anybody else does as far as like my uncle works at HEA. And so I'm like, oh, you know, can, can I capably handle, you know, cover HEA when my uncle does IT for them? And it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know the right answer to that question. But, you know, I, I, I think to like the story that I did about uh, Bob Summer when he died. And that was a story that I was only able to do because I had sort of the connections that I have in this community where I just sort of posted on Facebook. I was like, hey, I'm working on this story. Like, would anybody be willing to share their thoughts or share their stories of him? And I ended up getting, you know, a, a dozen responses. And I mean, that entire story only exists because I have, you know, because I was a part of this community. And I had those connections with local folks. Very cool. Well, well, thank you all for that, you know, discussion about the behind the scenes of the reporting process. I'd love to turn now to talking about the issues. 
that is the things that we've we've covered I'd, I'd love to go around and have everyone share some of your favorite things that you've worked on or things that you just think are the most important stories things people should be paying attention to and maybe you know sorry Jake to put you back on the spot but maybe let's let's start with you and, and snake your way back down the line what are some of the things you've covered let's say in the past year that are yet that you think people should be paying attention to I mean, I think a lot of the the most, I guess, significant in that way sort of stuff that I've I've been able to do is a lot of the the fishing stuff, which you know I know I know Hunter mentioned he's been sort of getting into in a big way too, and you know I think it's sort of it's just undeniable like fishing's not something I had any interest in growing up. It's certainly not something I was, you know, like oh I'm going to cover some fishing when I when I started at the Clarion, but it's just something that's just important and, and sort of impossible to not pay attention to, especially with, you know, I think as you're asking, you know, what are sort of the most important stories that we've done? I look to back in April, me and Ashlyn worked together on a, a pretty big, big piece looking at the closure of the King Salmon Sport Fishery and the Eastside Setnet Fishery. And that sort of kicked off, I mean, a whole year and, and ongoing sort of coverage of that issue as, you know, declining King Salmon population or you know, causing consternation, causing closures in, in local fisheries and, and threatening, you know, people's ways of life. And that's something that's going to continue being important, you know, especially going on with the, the Board of Fish meeting in February. Yeah. And then I, I don't want to keep the focus too much on important. I know you also cover a lot of arts events. Maybe what are some of the most interesting things you think you've covered? I mean, I, I love all the, art, all the art stuff. You know, there's so many. There's, I think, a, a super, super fun, especially young acting community like there's there's sort of a community across all of the different high schools that you know have their own drama programs and they, they come together for certain shows with like the the Kenai performers and triumvirate and the, they're you know always super fun to sort of sort of check in with and it's you know a lot of familiar faces that I see um, every time other art stuff you know just the the other Oh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I did a really fun story with one of the, the local bands that, that were, you know, sort of a common site at the Music in the Park and stuff. And that was Ben Jammin and the Jammin Band. And, you know, they, they announced on Facebook they were playing their final show. And so I reached out and I got to a, do a fun, sometimes teary interview with them about sort of what their story has been, especially as they were, you know, looking at, you know, one of their members leaving for Texas and the other two sort of continuing their own local projects. Well, thanks, Jake. And Ashlyn, let's turn to you now. What what do you think are some of the your favorite things that you've reported on? Some of the most important issues you think are are out there? Um, I mean, as far as most important, I think school district budget is definitely up there. That's uh, anything related to funding for schools is something that I am just very interested in. So I think end up doing a lot of stories about regardless of the situation, but. Um, yeah, just the district having already announced that it'll be facing another another budget deficit for the upcoming fiscal year. Um, I mean, that conversation is just it's interesting because you've you know, you're watching the, the school board try to balance keeping budget cuts as far away from the classroom with, you know, the community members who don't want popular programs to be shut down and then all of the communication that goes back and forth with the Alaska legislature about funding and it really all comes back to the governor. Like it's just, it's, it's a story that plays out over the course of several months. That's pretty interesting. I, and I think that's, I mean, the district's already said they're going to be facing some difficult questions and conversations ahead. So I expect that those stories will be ones that folks hear about, <laughs> like whether they're seeking them out or not. Um, I mean, other things, I mean, the, the K-Beach flooding issue is is a pretty big one. Um, what I find interesting about, and, and for folks who don't know, it's folks who live in the northwest area of Ski Beach Road have a high, you know, they live near a high water table, and there's been lots of precipitation over the last year, so a lot of residents in that area are dealing with very severe flooding. Um, and so what, what's interesting about that area is, you know, the, the borough is pretty limited in how it can respond. So what ends up happening is you've got a lot of residents who are trying to navigate, uh, you know, where to find relief in an area where a lot of jurisdictions overlap. Um, and so that, as that process is kind of evolved, it's still ongoing, but 
that is a topic that I've been keeping my eye on. Those are the ones that, that come to mind <laughs> off the top of my head. Thank you. All right. And then Hunter, let's let's turn to you. What are some of your favorites that you've put out so far? Yeah, to, to tie it all back into fishing again, um, <laughs> I, 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 um, I joined the Kenai Watershed Forum um, for like a day of, of field work. They, they do like uh, mapping for anadromous fish and streams. They try to identify, you know, where these, these fish are living. So I joined them for a day of field work. And not only was that, you know, an important story, but it was also one of my favorites just because um, I found the topic really interesting and also just you know, being out there with them while they're doing field work was a ton of fun. They, they made me put on this like big wading suit and boots and all that, which I had never worn before. And I'm like, you know, wearing this stuff and trudging through like dense forest and then into like, you know, lakes and waters and things of that sort. And, uh, then it started raining when we were out there, even though, um, you know, I had my equipment, it's totally fine. Um, and I was exhausted by the end of that day, but it was, it was a fun time. Um, that was one of my favorites that, you know, so far has stood out to me. Um, and then I also covered, um, I did a, I did a, a new story on a fisher down in Homer who caught this like weird looking fish, this rock greenling, um, that has like blue flesh and media like organizations, organizations from, you know, all, all over the world, like reported on this, but, um, I think I'm the only one of the only local journalists who who got to 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 report on it and also from you know what I was reading the other stories not a lot of them talked about the you know how common these fish are that have this like bright blue flesh but it's apparently pretty common and so I I thought that was really interesting and that one was a ton of fun plus you know fat bear week has also been a lot of fun covering that and you know, learning about the bears and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, before I moved up here, I don't think I'd ever heard of Fat Bear Week. And now I'm like super into it. So we, I mean, we love those chunky bears. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrea. And, and thank you all for digging through your own personal archives. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to the Kenai Conversation, where we've been talking to local reporters about their favorite things they've reported on recently. And then on on the opposite end... What are people tracking and planning to publish in the coming weeks? What should people be looking out for or paying attention to? And maybe we'll start with you, Ashlyn. Yeah. um, So I think probably the biggest story that'll be coming from me in the next week or so has to do with um, Orange Shirt Day, which is a day of remembrance for like, I mean, it's, Indigenous people around the around the United States, but in Alaska specifically, Alaska Native children who were sent to residential boarding schools and stripped of their, you know, Alaska Native cultures and identity is. Uh, I, I mean, I think folks are are pretty familiar with that issue, but so the the Kenaitse tribe held, um, like a a ceremony of of remembrance, and I was able to sit down with, uh two women who spent time in boarding schools when they were children and I mean that was just a very harrowing sad powerful you know couple of hours with them and so I've been really going over the best way to kind of put that story down into words um just because it's been you know it's it's a heavy topic it's been sitting with me and I want to make sure that I do those those women justice um but so that's kind of what I'm looking at at publishing in the next few days. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. Jake, what about you? What what can we look out for? You know, I, I don't know that I've got, got too much on the immediate horizon. I, I just pulled up a, a photo of my, my calendar that I have. You know, it's October, so it's going to be a lot of, a lot of Halloween events. Um, you know, the Haunted Chamber. Um, there's a keynote performer's performance that I already mentioned coming up that I'm excited to cover. Um, also, you know, the the local fish and game advisory committees should be start should start meeting either this month or maybe in early next month to start discussing those proposals to the board of fish and so that's kind of the the other significant thing on my radar but otherwise just kind of taking each day as it comes yeah what is what is the board of fish going to be considering in this cycle i mean a lot of those proposals center on like i was mentioning earlier is that those king salmon 
the declining king salmon numbers and the way that's caused closures in the king salmon sport fishery and especially in the east side set net fishery and you know those a, a lot of the proposals that are set to be discussed by the board of fish in their february meeting which is going to be up in anchorage are modifications to the oh it's a long it's a long word it's the it's like the late run kenai river king salmon management plan uh, is maybe it um but a lot of the, a lot of the proposals discuss changes to that, hoping to get more opportunities for those commercial anglers, the the east side set netters uh, in the water, um, and so the the local advisory committee will start meeting to discuss sort of their recommendation, yes or no, on each of those, which will be weighed by the board when they meet. Gotcha. And then Hunter, what about you? What can we expect from you in the near future? Yeah, at least. And for in terms of this week, I'm thinking about doing a story on um, like music program, like um, like shortages in music programs within elementary schools. Um, The post office here in Kenai recently was awarded some sort of award that like makes them like eligible to compete nationally for something. And I'm still trying to like track down the postman and like kind of find out, you know, what the heck, what the heck. Yeah. Compete in what? It's a post office. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know. So I'm I'm trying to, I've been calling the last few days and uh, haven't really gotten in touch with the postman, but um, I want to find out more about it so I can kind of dig into it. Um, Also tomorrow I'll be going to um, an egg take, like a salmon egg take, which I'm still not entirely sure what that is, <laughs> but um, I'm going to be going to that tomorrow and covering it. Um, I'll probably do another Fat Bear Week follow-up. Uh, voting ends tomorrow, um, so I'll probably do something like that. Um, probably a couple of Halloween-related things, like like Jake was saying. And um, there, you know, you know, I have an interest in covering, you know, interesting people. And uh, recently, I covered this. Uh, I, I did a feature on this guy who's like super into like remote control racing and things of that sort. Um, but I, I want to eventually do a feature on my neighbor. Um, he he's a character. He's an interesting guy. But the first time I ever met him, um, <laughs> he showed me. Uh, he has like in his basement this like like insane coca-cola like memorabilia collection like when i walked down there i felt like i was walking into like a museum i was like oh my gosh there's probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of just coca-cola memorabilia which i i just find super fascinating and he has like interesting little anecdotes for like every little piece that he found like he was pointing to one and he's like ebay and drinking is not a good idea um, so I, I think, I think, a uh, feature on him and, you know, his collection would also be fun. And then I'll probably end up doing, you know, more fishing related stories and, and that sort of thing. Thank you. Yeah. And I think maybe I should, I should jump in and share sort of what's on my docket. I think thinking kind of longer term, well, this one's short term, um, the borough has been working for a really long time on a gravel pit code revision. Um, and that is something that folks here tend to be very passionate about. So as they as they near a potential code revision, I'll be keeping an eye on that and which way that goes and who's happy about it, which will probably be no one based on how discussions have been going I mean, so far. It usually means you've got a, you found a compromise. And that's what they've been saying, <laughs> as long as no one's happy. Um, and then there's um, a, a school charter application that's out there that um, met this morning with the Charter Oversight Committee, so I'm sure you can expect some things out there about progress on that application. Um, and then I, I also have plans to cover, you know, uh, on the Sterling Highway Bypass Project, well, probably stuff about the Sterling Highway Bypass Project, progress and budget in general. That's that's another thing where um, big numbers are at play and, and costs have skyrocketed, which have kind of put the schedule in jeopardy. But um, in the short term, there's also archaeological work that happens um, through that area and I'm planning to connect with Kanaitzi to talk about progress on you know the archaeology that has happened there I know a lot of folks drive past those sites and wonder like what are they finding here <laughs> what are they what are they digging for so I'm hoping to connect with the the archaeologists who have been working there all summer and see if they found anything and you know you know if it's meaningful what will be happening to those artifacts and what the, the future of archaeological there, work there is. Um, I'm also keeping an eye on a, a mining project that's sort of making progress across Cook Inlet uh, at the base of Mount Iliamna, the Johnson Tract project. I, I covered that a bit this past spring. Um, it's an interesting project on Siri-owned land. It's a gold mining project, and there's a, there's a Canadian mining interest that's 
working there to potentially develop it into a, a productive gold mine. But there have been some concerns from business owners in that area and environmental groups. And I know that those folks have been in contact with the borough. So so I'll just be keeping an eye on that and, and how that might impact people who live on this side of Cook Inlet. And then, I mean, in general, I think, I think as Ashlyn mentioned, keeping an eye on school budgets is kind of going to be uh, pertinent at all times for the next year because that is that is going to continue to be to be an issue and, and something that um, yeah that, that kind of will impact all of us so yeah well as we're as we're wrapping up here does anyone else have anything that they want to share that we weren't able to touch on about your experience as reporters things you've covered things you're looking forward to covering it's just been an interesting change for me um, you know in addition to the job, just, you know, living in Alaska, it's very different from Florida and, um, I'm learning new things every day. So cool. Anyone else? Yeah. I mean, I'll just say on the topic of, of big numbers, I mean, I definitely don't take for granted the fact that I can throw a lot of numbers and words at people and trust that they'll be able to go back and, and read them. Um, I enjoy big numbers <laughs> to be there. Like I've got like a sticky note on my computer. That's got like, you know, five W's, you know, are there two sides to this story Are public funds being used, which is just kind of a checklist I run through whenever I'm working on a story to make sure I've addressed all of those things. And so there's, yeah, it, it, I mean, I feel like there's room for, for data in every story and the data is usually out there. I mean, I say that as a former data journalism major, so I might be a little bit biased, but the the information to back claims up is, is usually out there if you're willing to find it. So, And especially with things like that, I, I try to keep in mind what I would want to know about a situation uh, when I'm writing a story, and that usually is how much money is being spent, where it's coming from, I mean, change over time, things like that, those basic statistics type things. So just on the topic of, of numbers. <laughs> Jake, any, any closing thoughts? You know, I don't think so. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you all so much for, for joining me here today and for, yeah, for getting into the, into the weeds of reporting on this area. And that's all for this episode of the Kenai Conversation. Thanks to Ashlyn O'Hara and Jake Dye from the Peninsula Clarion and KDLL's own Hunter Morrison for joining us. You can hear the Kenai Conversation every week on Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. Or you can find it on our website, kdll.org. I'm Riley Board. Thanks for tuning in.